You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Wait a second. I I had dropped something in here for my uh, lunchroom, lunchroom segment. I yeah, deleted it that... probably when I did the when I did the questions for Charles Smith. My bad. Oh man. <laughs> but what was it? <laughs> it was that thing that Josh. I oh, said, man, can... that's. Yeah, hold on. You can see version history. What was it, Brent? While Lindsay's looking. I... I don't, that was like on Tuesday when I dropped that in there. Yeah. Okay, here, let me see if I found it here. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today are my co-hosts, Lindsay Nicolay. Going a little stir-crazy over here, folks. And Brent Leatherwood. I am ready to do this. Awesome. Well, later in the show, we're going to talk to a special guest, Charles Smith, who's vice president at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and also a professor of leadership at Spurgeon College. But before we get into that, Lindsay, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Okay, guys. Well, we have been talking about one thing, and that's coronavirus. We've been trying to meet some needs of those of our readers and uh, try to answer questions that they have and provide them with practical tools to help them as they're navigating this new reality. So I just want to list a few of them. We've got an article by Brad Hambrick, who's a counselor at the Summit Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and he gives us four principles to remember when talking to our children about the coronavirus. This may seem difficult for some parents, and they're looking for some tips on how to address this sometimes scary topic. So he mentions these four things. I'll just give a brief overview. He says the conversation is important. It's not a monologue. It's an ongoing conversation. We want to be sure to answer the child's questions and not answer your own priorities. This is not something that's meant to Talk to them about where they're going to go to college ultimately. Remember the grapevine effect. If you have if you have older children, that will spread down to the younger children. And then remember your body language. So how you're communicating using your body is going to communicate to them whether they feel safe or afraid or whatever it might be. Josh and Brent, have you used any of the? (laughs) Hold on, Brent is laughing. How you communicate to them using your body? (laughs) Because you said. Because you said that's going to spread down to the younger kids. Come and on. Those... Okay, okay, Wait, okay. No, I'll, I'll, I'll from, do pick, the body language. Pick it up from like Josh and Brent. Have you said that if that's what you're going to do? Or just keep going. So Brent and Josh, as fathers, just hearing these tips, do they seem helpful to you? They seem, I mean, they're very helpful for us. And I think as we have talked about this with our own children, we have just been trying to, I, I may have said this a couple of weeks ago, we have been trying to focus on the good that is out there. So being really thankful and really appreciative that even though there's a lot of un- uncertainty out there, God has provided our society with lots of really skilled doctors and nurses and researchers that are helping people through this crisis. But it's certainly something that our children are very aware of. Ours are on the younger side, but it's good. Yeah, and I would say for us, uh, Brent, actually something you said last week was so helpful for us when you said we're trying to focus on good people doing good things or things people are doing to help people. I've uh, had a lot of conversations with my son about that, and I think that this uh, list from Brad is super helpful, Lindsay. It is. And, you know, I've tried to practice these things with Marion at home, but all she says back is, meh. It's not working. (laughs) So for those listening, Marion is one. So I don't have the opportunity to talk to her about these things, but these are so helpful. She's somewhat blissfully unaware. 
She is blissfully unaware. And sometimes I look at her and I am jealous. Um, So we're thankful for this article from Brad. Um, Next, we have an article from our friends, Brant and Jill Wagner, who are here in Tennessee with those of us in Nashville. And they have seven ways to love our neighbors while socially distanced. Some things that they mention, uh, blood banks, donating to blood banks because there's a shortage, finding out how you can provide food for school children who don't have the meals that they were looking forward to at school, and then checking on your neighbors. For me personally, this checking on neighbors is important. We were just outside yesterday because finally the weather was pretty. And we have an older neighbor who literally is dying. She has liver cancer. And um, her sitting outside and some of us neighbors with small kids just being able to come around her and provide her with some conversation. She loves to see the liveliness of the little kids is important. It doesn't feel like we're doing much, but it's important. And then we have Daryl Crouch, who's also a local pastor here in Tennessee with three ways the local church is ready for challenging times. And he says this, just as hospitals are built to treat sick people and schools are built to educate uneducated people, churches exist to give hope and help to people who need hope and help. And what better way by um, offering a cup of cold water, offering a meal in the name of Jesus and telling people about the good news and the hope that we find in him. Yeah, I just want to say uh, those last uh, two articles that you mentioned, Lindsay, I think both of them are, are things that people should really check out. Both uh, Daryl's church in recovering from the tornadoes we talked about several weeks ago and the way they were already serving their community. And now in the midst of this kind of time of social distancing as we're dealing with this crisis, uh, it's just been uh, incredible uh, as a model for how other churches can serve others. And the same thing that, you know, Brant and Jill were talking about in terms of serving people. There are so many ways that I've seen Christians step up uh, to, to love and serve their neighbors, both literally the people that live in their own neighborhoods and communities and to uh, and to serve people far outside of that uh, in, in some unexpected ways. And so I think this is definitely worth checking out. And I would say both of those are helpful reminders that we as Christians, we need to be outward focused. The gospel calls us to serve others. And we need to acknowledge our pastors, our folks that are in heavily involved in churches right now, they're in a tough spot in this season. There's no doubt about it, but let's just be mindful still how we can serve others. So I'm really thankful both of these pieces keep that front and center. Absolutely. And just as a sneak peek for listeners, we have a piece coming up next week that is a question and answer with two pastors in California and how they're ministering in the midst of the shelter-in-place regulations. So we just want to keep those coming for you to uh, just make you aware of how you can pray for pastors and how you can serve your church. And then finally, just wanted to highlight how our president, Russell Moore, is leading the way with some questions that have been circulating around in society and in culture, and he's providing us with some helpful answers. So be looking to media, various media outlets to see what he says in the future. But for now, he has an op-ed in New York Times about the value of the elderly and how we have to put human dignity and human lives um, above all in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, because we all have inherent worth and dignity because we are made in God's image. And then last Friday, in case you missed it, He had an article on our site titled, Does It Violate Religious Liberty to Close Churches Over Coronavirus? Some pastors and church leaders have been wrestling with this. So Dr. Moore provides us with a great 
wise answer. And the short answer is no. Right now, it does not violate religious liberty to close churches over coronavirus. Yeah, and a great way to uh, keep up with all the stuff that we publish is uh, in addition to checking out our websites at erlc.com and Dr. Moore's website is russellmoore.com, you can follow us on social media. So uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, we're on all of those platforms, keeping you up to date with not only the articles and written content that we have, but also posting things like when uh, Dr. Moore, one of our team members, does uh, a media interview or is is quoted in an article or is published somewhere else. uh, That's a great way to stay in touch and keep up with all of that stuff. That's right, Josh. So listeners, Josh and Brent, that's what's happening on ERLC.com. And that brings us into our culture section for the week. So Brent, uh, tell us what you've been looking at in the world of culture. So let's uh, let's try and start off with things that are maybe a corona adjacent as opposed to directly related to coronavirus, just because there is more news uh, that is happening. Folks may have tuned it out, but there is in fact still a presidential race that is upon us. And this week was noteworthy for a couple of things. So the leading Democratic Uh, candidate for president, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, is now operating from home. As a matter of fact, there were several news stories this week, and we'll link to those in the show notes, about how he has set up an in-home studio in his library to uh, give daily updates, provide some vision for what he believes is the response to coronavirus. It's just really fascinating because we haven't seen this kind of campaign posture before. No, it's crazy uh, to to watch him do this just from his house. Uh, I caught an interview that he did earlier this week uh, with uh, Jake Tapper, and they're talking. And the thing that stuck out to me in that conversation is that the Vice President Biden coughed into his hand, and Jake Tapper on live TV uh, corrected him and said, "You know, I think you're supposed to cough into you know your elbow." <laughs> exactly. We hey, we all need reminders in this day about what is proper procedure. Uh, his main rival, that his only remaining rival at this point for the Democratic nomination, is Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. And they have an interesting decision point coming up because there is a new debate uh, that, that is uh, supposed to take place in the days ahead. And Senator Sanders still wants to debate, even though Vice President Biden has racked up what many see as an insurmountable delegate lead. So he's Bernie Sanders wants to debate. Joe Biden is basically saying, this is mine. And now I get to set the parameters. We ain't debating. So when will we find out if that happens or not? Well, it's it's still a pretty fluid situation right now. The campaigns are going back and forth. I think ultimately it's up to each individual whether they want to participate or not. And the network itself, whether they want to move forward with only one person. It'll be interesting to see. But that's certainly something to keep an eye on in the political world. Another thing that has been interesting in this season that we are in is Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York has basically become an overnight media sensation. Uh, He is providing each day at 11 Eastern, 10 Central, an update on what is going on in New York, which uh, experts agree is, is more or less the epicenter of the outbreak in the United States. And folks are resonating with these daily messages that Cuomo is sending out, these press conferences that he's having. At the same time, at the end of each day, the president is hosting a daily White House briefing, and those ratings are apparently sky high right now. So what that tells me is folks, while they are at home, they are looking for really good, valuable sources of news. Yeah, I think that uh, especially like in the case of Governor Cuomo, you look at all of the cases that are in New York, which the last time I looked was over 25,000 cases 
his briefings, I think, have really resonated and struck such a chord with people because it, as his state is in the middle of such an intense crisis, he has uh, he has just put a lot of humanity and compassion on display. And as he has called and challenged uh, New Yorkers to uh, to care for one another and to, to show uh, extra compassion and humanity uh, to each other as they are facing this crisis, it's, it's really been something to watch. And then it is also no surprise uh, that the president's daily briefings have been so uh, – so noteworthy, especially I think the uh, the real hero of those things, you know, the guy that I'm looking for every day on the stage is is Dr. Fauci. Yeah, Dr. Fauci is an incredible figure I, that honestly that I wasn't very aware of before this, even though I should have been. Um, but he's someone that you would like to adopt to be your grandfather. Yes, that's right. <laughs> he and the, right. Uh, doc, the other doctor, what's her name? Burks. Burks. Yes. Yeah, Fauci is noteworthy because he has served across multiple administrations. And so he's somebody that is more or less transcending this political moment, which that's really what Americans are looking for right now. Okay, so we need to acknowledge this week was a record-breaking moment in terms of job losses. So it was revealed Thursday morning, and many folks expected this, but still it was an eye-popping number. Um, just under 3.3 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits uh, with their state and federal governments. And that is a number that was not seen uh, in the depths of the Great Recession. So we are certainly in a season where there are a lot of people uh, who are now hurting uh, professionally and, and potentially even financially. But there is some good news. So I did want to highlight this. I didn't want to just leave us there. Uh, it was noted online this week that there are several large companies that are hiring. So we did this, I think, last week, but it bears mentioning again because people may be listening and wanting to know, okay, where can I go for a job right now? Walmart is hiring an additional 150,000 workers. Instacart is hiring an additional 300,000. Dollar General has put out a request for 50,000 hires. Domino's Pizza, CVS, Pepsi Company, and Kroger, which we mentioned previously. So there are a lot of big names that are seeking workers right now. And hopefully, if you're a listener who unfortunately may be in a season right now of some professional challenges, maybe that could be a a solution for you. So I would definitely point you to those companies. And we can list those uh, in our show notes if you didn't catch them as I, I mentioned them. So with all of the job losses, Brent, and the economy, how it's tanking the stock markets, how is our federal government responding? So as we are taping this, we have gotten to the point now where the Senate has passed unanimously the coronavirus rescue package. Uh, It's worth $2.2 trillion. That is a massive uh, piece of legislation. As a matter of fact, it is 10% of our gross national product uh, to to give you a sense of how large this is. And it is meant to be a stabilizing piece of legislation for the economy. Uh, So individuals are going to be receiving um, some aid from this, a number of businesses and a number of industries as well. It is now in the hands of the House of Representatives, which they are anticipating votes coming there on Friday of this week. 
I think it's such a huge deal that we are looking at this uh, stimulus package. I mean, this is, we've talked about this in the past about the fact that these stimulus packages have happened before, but nothing along these lines. Uh, Looking at $2 trillion and, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, regardless of, of, whatever your you know big picture thoughts on the government taking these steps are, I'm really hopeful that the relief that's coming both to businesses and to individuals is going to do a lot of good, both to help the economy, but also just, just to help real people who are struggling in this season. Lindsay, are we going to have any resources that people can get up to date on this when it does pass? Yeah, Brent. So today we have an email going out, the weekly email that we've talked about on the ERLC podcast before. We'll have an explainer about this. Well, several explainers, one from Joe Carter and another from the policy team in DC. So if you are not subscribed to the weekly, you can go to ERLC.com and scroll down and enter your email and subscribe so you can receive these explainers. That's great. On the SBC front, uh, coronavirus has certainly taken a historic toll in the sense that the largest annual gathering of Southern Baptists was officially canceled for this year. The SBC annual meeting that was due to take place in June in Orlando, and that is a historically noteworthy decision that's been made by the executive committee and the Great Commission council members, which represent all the entities. So do we know off the top of our heads some of the ramifications of this? Yeah. So, you know, this has not happened since uh, World War II. I think it was 1943 was the last time this took place, Uh, though if I was better at math, I could tell you right away. According to the SBC uh, bylaws, what's going to happen is that there's basically just going to be a freeze. So just pretend like instead of the annual meeting being canceled, it's just being pushed off a year. Everything is going to remain in place. Uh, Presumably, that means that the executive committee, who kind of handles the day-to-day affairs of the denomination when we're not in session, which only happens once a year for, for two days, the executive committee will be able to uh, put together uh, the budget and whatever essential things need to happen so that the denomination can continue to function uh, for another year until we're able to get to the next annual meeting. One of the things that that also means is that uh, President J.D. Greer is going to serve for another year uh, and his term will be extended to that. And so typically in the SBC, presidents are usually elected uh, for a one-year term and then usually re-elected then for a second year, and they only serve two years. Uh, This will be J.D.'s, he's already in his second year, so he will be extending that uh, to serve for another year. And look, the the SBC and and just the the wider uh, kind of church world, they are adapting and responding to this. So a couple of just news items that stuck out to me. I thought this was really great. Uh, Our friends down at the Louisiana Baptist State Convention they're donating 10,000 N95 respirator masks uh, to a local medical center in New Orleans uh, to help with the medical needs there for uh, folks who are on the front lines fighting this virus. And that's just awesome. We're, we're actually hearing about that in other instances, companies who had stockpiled those for like wildfires and things like that. They're also um, making sure that those resources get to hospitals and medical personnel And similarly, churches uh, are adapting the way that uh, they are doing worship. So uh, there's a story out of San Antonio about churches offering drive-in worship services, which I think is awesome. What what an innovative way to respond. You know, I, what I love about that so much is that we're seeing churches respond both by like being very forward looking and some are doing throwbacks. You know, we have this whole drive in church thing happening, even as we have uh, churches taking the advantage of 
things like YouTube or Facebook Live or Zoom. I don't even know what it must be like to do a church service on Zoom where literally you're looking face to face with all of the people that you're worshiping with. Uh, but, you know, churches are doing whatever they can to continue to serve their people and to continue uh, continue to make disciples and advance the gospel. And I think that's incredible. And also out of Texas, um, this is nowhere, the New Beginnings Baptist Church, uh, an SBC church in Longview, Texas, has a program where they are offering grocery relief uh, to members of their congregation and their communities who are affected by this crisis. As a matter of fact, they have ramped up to where they're helping 200 families each week uh, through throughout this coronavirus crisis. And I, man, what a way to serve and to advance the gospel. Brent, these news items that you just shared is the example of the graciousness and the kindness and the power of our God who takes messes and hard situations and uses them to mobilize his people and glorify his name and put his love on display. It's incredible that even in the midst of such such hardship that we can see the church step up because of the spirit in us and reach people in practical ways in order to share the hope that we have. That's a good word. On the international scene, so most folks probably are aware of this, but it's certainly noteworthy, just like the SBC annual meeting being canceled. The Olympics have been postponed until 2021, which is interesting because it's going to be the 2020 Olympics held in 2021 in Japan. Like they were very, very purposeful about saying this will be the 2020 Olympics, not the 2021 Olympics. I just thought that was interesting. That's so interesting. I thought that was a really cool thing because uh, they're they're trying to mark this year as being some kind of un you know an unprecedented time and something that we don't want to forget. So even you know next year when we're or next summer when we're all watching the Olympics, we'll be thinking back to the fact that that, that should have been happening in just a few months from now, and we will know way more at that time about. What were the effects of what Dr. Moore called in his uh, New York Times piece, the great pandemic? We, we will, you know, hopefully be looking at all of that in retrospect. So I'm sad to see that the Olympics had to be postponed, but I, I enjoy watching them. And I'm hopeful that this means that we'll get to see, you know, a, a fully uh, functioning uh, Olympics. And man, what a, what a thing for us to watch as, as a whole country and uh, as nations around the world having lived through something like this. I'm so sad. I love the Olympics. I love the Summer Olympics, so I'll have to wait another year. But my only consolation, well, two consolations are that, number one, we'll be able to plan our Olympics watching parties, put more time into that. Number two, my daughter will be a little older, so maybe she'll have fun watching it along with us and paying attention. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, On the somewhat lighter side, I thought this was really interesting. So photographers have been taking before and after pictures of cityscapes uh, from before when life was normal and people were out and about just like they typically would be. And now when people are kind of physically distanced or uh, on shelter in place orders, and it's amazing to see these vibrant urban cities and there's just no one there. In some ways, it's really beautiful. In other ways, it's really haunting. And we've got one linked on here that actually show it from a satellite's perspective. Uh, just the, the lack of human interaction that's taking place makes for a vastly different view of the world. And also Thursday of this week was supposed to be the opening day for Major League Baseball. 
Oh man, so sad. I, Everyone I is am, sad. I am missing my Atlanta Braves. Well, that, that's because you're not normal, Lindsay. Um, Look, Lindsay, but, baseball is America's pastime. Okay, like I know right now it feels like reading the news or scrolling Instagram is America's pastime, but it's it's really baseball. And there's just a there's just a sense of loss that people feel because that's what should be happening right now. That's right, Lindsay. Empathy. I, I need your empathy as somebody who loves baseball and you're you're not you're not extending any empathy towards me or Josh. I will empathize because of the lack of football yeah well even <laughs> okay. if you don't care about major league baseball you know I'll tell you like we should be doing t-ball right now with Jackson and other you know all of my friends we should be out there uh you know having fun on the baseball field and right now you know that's not going to happen that's right and then as I was looking around in the sports world one thing that really went viral with this week was the new Rams logo, the NFL team that is now based in Los Angeles. They debuted their new logo and immediately, so, so they put, to give you some background, they put two years of PR and branding experts looking at this, trying to create this really cool, nifty, modern logo. And it took all of about five minutes for the Twitterverse to discover that there are a lot of similarities between the the new Rams logo and the Angelo State Rams logo. As a matter of fact, there's too many similarities. That's right. The internet then did what the internet does best, which is absolutely pile on this thing. And uh, so if you didn't see any of that back and forth, it was substantial. Yeah, so we've got we've got a story that's uh, kind of serving as a roundup for it uh, that we'll link to in the show notes. But that was... Uh, that was a humorous cultural moment. So anyways, Lindsay, Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. So now we're about to talk to Charles Smith. Charles is a vice president at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's also a professor of leadership at Spurgeon College. He has been uh, one of the uh, central architects behind the total like renaissance and resurgence that's happened at Midwestern, and so we're excited to talk to him now. Charles, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing in ministry right now. Man, Josh, I so appreciate you guys having me on the podcast. It's good to have a few minutes with you just to chat and I have so much respect for the ERLC and for you individuals there and what you're doing, especially now during the coronavirus. And uh, we were just talking about you guys having to do all that remotely. And uh, so just appreciate what you guys are doing for the kingdom and what you continue to get to do. And it's fun to even answer this question. Um, I'm a Leo. Uh, I like long walks on the beach. And <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, I actually don't know what Leo is. I don't know if that's right, my right month, but uh, no, man, I'm uh, I'm I'm married, uh, happily married. Been married 14 years. Uh, my wife Ashley and I, I have three daughters, and uh, man, I'm currently serving as the vice president of institutional relations and professor of leadership at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. So we're we're out here in Kansas City, and uh, I've been doing that since the fall of 2012. So our president, Dr. Jason Allen, and I both served in Louisville, uh, which is originally where I met Lindsay, who's on the call with us here today, too. But, uh, right. but yeah, we, we served there for, I guess, seven years. I did my MDiv there, and then we moved here together in 2012. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a wild ride. So, Charles, can you tell us one thing, j- even just one thing in this unique season of life and ministry that God is teaching you? 
Mm. Yeah, the challenge is keeping it to one thing and uh, and and trying to figure out what exactly. the Lord is teaching us in this moment. But you know, as I, I listen to you ask that question, I think there I think I'd have to ask it in or answer it in two ways. And and the first is just over this long season. Um, or, or a longer season, which is not just the coronavirus. And man, what God has been impressing upon me is just his patience and faithfulness. And part of that is um, probably like all of us, we have some sort of little Bible reading plan. And I've always tried to do the Bible thing in a year. And I've done that many times. And over the past couple of years, I've tried to just be really more um, relaxed with it, which has allowed me to spend longer periods of time in different parts of the Bible. And recently I've been just walking through Genesis and Exodus and just different parts of the Old Testament. And I'm just constantly amazed by the sinfulness of humanity uh, and me, you know, obviously see myself and all that, but then also just the unbelievable patience of the Lord and how he's, he's always running after his people. He's always um, faithful. And, you know, I was, um, you know, thinking of Psalm 23, 7, which says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And we all like grew up singing that and celebrating that. I think as I'm I'm getting a little bit older, getting a new appreciation for I've, I've been walking down this road long enough where I know myself enough. I know my sin enough to be really shocked by the grace of God and the faithfulness of God and just how patient he is and how much I can lean on that. But, but more immediately in this season, man, I'm just learning uh, with COVID-19, just like you guys are just to trust, to listen, to abide, to not, to respond and not react. And I think that's, those are subtle differences, but I think they're significant spiritually. You know, I'm like a big Enneagram guy. And so my Enneagram is three and eight. So I, I love to make a decision and want to be successful. And for people with that personality, this can be really difficult because you you don't know what the future holds, let alone the next six hours hold. And so for me in this moment, I, I think Christ's likeness looks like waiting upon the Lord, uh, not making rash decisions, trusting, not being anxious. And, you know, those things are really easy to talk about and say and write papers about and things like that. It's harder to live that out day by day and lead your family and your organization that way. Because, I mean, if you guys look around the world like you guys are, there are a lot of people hurting right now. And they're they're right, whether you're a business owner or a pastor or a leader at an institution like ours, you're right to want to respond and fight and strive and fix and do all those sorts of things. And I think we should. I think what I'm trying to learn is what should the inside of my heart look like as we do those things appropriately. And so trying to balance, man, let's work really, really hard. Let's be smart. Let's be wise. Let's shepherd people well. And let's be still inside. And that's, man, that's a hard tension, but it's something I'm, I'm trying to embrace right now. Charles, that's a that's a great answer on the spiritual side of things. So let's let's pivot over to the cultural side um, and thinking mm-hmm. about Christians and, and this cultural moment. You lead a sizable team there at Midwestern, in addition to all the other folks across SBC Life that you interact with on a daily basis. I'm curious, those folks that you lead, those folks that you engage with, what are they paying attention to right now in culture? Mm. Man, I think as a team, uh, a leadership team here at the seminary, we're asking two questions. 
And, uh, and, and the answers to these questions change like literally by the hour at this moment. And I, I trust these things are going to stabilize at some point. But the two questions for us as we just look at the environment around us and, and culture is, is the first is how long, like how long is this going to take to work through the system? And then how different are things going to look on the back end? So, so how long is this? What is this going to look like to get through this crisis? And then how different is the world uh, we step in to on the back end? And man, when you think about higher education, you know, people have been saying for 20 years that higher education is in what, what economists would call a bubble, you know, that they're, they're um, overvalued assets, you know, so people are meant, people are paying way too much for higher education. And there's this huge debt burden on students across the world, really. And that's why you see folks like Bernie Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren and others pushing for debt relief. And I think in, in some ways, it's understandable that they're pushing towards those things because it's a massive burden. And so we we that already existed, this attitude of, man, we're not sure if higher education is worth it. And then if you take the microcosm of, of evangelicalism, that's a part of that broader equation. You have a lot of people in the church just wondering, uh, you know, do you need a seminary degree at all? And it's, I think it's part of this broad anti-institutional trend and culture where you tend to respect the person that just got their education on the streets a little bit more than at the institution. And so when you combine those things, you combine this, um, this pandemic with a broader bubble, with a down economy, with already culture was leading towards more informal cohort base, things like that. It, it can be a perfect storm for a lot of institutions. And so what we fear is, you know, what are you going to see with churches and organizations over the next really years? I think things are going to start tripping here in the next few months. But I think over the next three to five years, you're going to see a lot of institutions struggle in pronounced ways because of this. Uh, and because of the the trends that preceded it. And so for us, we're asking, yeah, how long, man, when do we get through this really acute social distancing? You have to do school online, but then how different is the world behind it? And then what what does that mean for how we lead and steward our resources, our people, our ideas, or what does our vision look like today? And uh, and by God's grace, again, we, we positioned, we've been positioned in such a way that we're in a relatively strong position financially. And so, again, by God's grace, we've we've been afforded the privilege to even ask those questions and not just respond. So, so yeah, how long is it, and then how different um, is this going to look like on the back end? Is kind of what we're thinking about. There are certainly um, a lot of unknowns moving forward, Charles, but we know the Lord's in control. But looking ahead, you have been working alongside Dr. Allen and the team at Midwestern to bring about a real transformation over the last several years. Lots and lots of wins and amazing things that the Lord has used y'all to do. So can you tell us about your role in that and maybe any reflections on how God has worked through that process? Mm, Lizzie, you're kind of say that. I, I don't... Um... I'm hesitant to to kind of locate myself within that because it's just hard. Uh, one, because it's hard, and two, um, yeah, it's just it, it's kind of a weird thing to even reflect that way. But I, a lot of that is just because of the way it's happened here in Kansas City. It's it's so clearly of God for us. You know, the first we've been here eight years, and the first couple of years, it was easy as hard as we were working. It was easy to draw a line between our success and what we were doing. 
because, you know, you were just moving from a thousand students to 1500 students or something. It's just very easy to naturally think, oh, well, we're, we're making investments here and we hired some people here. And of course, of course we grew. And I think just the older I've gotten and the longer I've been here, the more, the slower I am to kind of go, oh, we did this and the Lord blessed it. It's just kind of shocked at what the Lord's done. And I, I hope you don't hear that with a whiff of pride. My, my point is um, it's hard to even look back and to see exactly what we've done and understand how the Lord's blessed us in that. But a couple of things come to mind just as I, I even think about this is I'd probably mention three things. That the first is that meaningful change takes time. And I think a lot of people from the outside that aren't here would go, man, it seemed like overnight within a year, Midwestern kind of turned and you guys were doing, you know, really amazing new things. And I've heard people say that about the ERLC too, because you guys came at a similar time, uh, Dr. Moore came, but knowing people like you guys on the ground and Andrew Walker and Philip and other guys, I, I know, no, it actually took years and years and years and you guys are still in that process. And so one of the things I've learned is just, leadership that's significant and leadership that lasts just takes a long time. And uh, so that's been helpful to me. It's helped me uh, be more patient. The second thing I'd say is that culture and people are more important than strategy and products. And so I've just learned, man, the people you get on the bus, uh, the culture you establish as an organization, whether it's a church or the ERLC or Midwestern, it really does drive the bus. The people drive the bus. The culture drives the bus. It's not necessarily the product or the content or the strategy. Those things are important, but they're really secondary to this bigger organizational reality we call culture. So, so that's been huge to me. Uh, just developing people, having a healthy culture is, is a big part. And then finally, just that God, I, I, this sounds cheesy, but that God blesses faithful and focused leadership. And one of the challenges for any organization is to care about the competition more than you do your own culture or your own team or your own ministry or care about politics or what's happening in the world around you. And I think the Lord blesses not us um, burying our heads in a sand organizationally, but at the same time, just like keeping our eye on the ball that God has given us. And for us, the ball that God has given us is to train leaders for the church in Kansas City and through online across across the globe. And so for us, I think it's waking up day by day and week by week and just fighting to um, to stay faithful to what the Lord's given us. And I think um, I think he he he's excited God that is to give us more if we're faithful with what we have. And so we've just tried to really keep our nose clean to do the next best thing and be faithful with what we have. So those are three things that come to my mind. I don't know if that's helpful to you, but that's, that's what we're thinking about right now. No, that's, that's really helpful. And uh, to pick up on that thread. So one of the ways as you've transformed Midwestern, you've been teaching classes on leadership and you have recently launched a podcast about leadership. So tell our audience, who are some of your personal heroes um, or leaders whose lives you liked, uh, that you like to study and teach about? And what's the goal with your new podcast on leadership? Yeah, man, I appreciate you giving me, I didn't have to pay you or anything for you, uh, <laughs> you pumping the new podcast. <laughs> so the podcast is called The Leadership Project. 
Uh, it's it's named after a staff and student leadership development program I started at Midwestern five or six years ago. And uh, so, yeah, Launch Monday. We're really excited about it. And then the goal is I think we live within a world um, and especially within a generation that is really confused when it comes to leadership. Uh, you have folks that are fired up about leadership and they have a very secular view. You have Christians that think leadership is only a secular thing. And what I'm trying to do in the podcast is help people see that that every Christian uh, is called to lead. And I define that as taking initiative for the glory of God and the good of others. So all of us are called to follow God on mission, to step towards the broken, the needy, uh, with the hope of the gospel. And that looks like a thousand different things. And so what's fun to me, because that's my burden, you know, when I think about heroes and, and who I like to think about, there's there's kind of two veins. One is these larger than life people, you know, people like Abraham Lincoln and Churchill and, you know, General Patton and George Bush and all the people that you guys would not be surprised by. I, I enjoy that stuff just as much as anybody else because it's fascinating. And you see in that, that the Lord uses what I would call faithful and focused leadership to move the world around. Like nations are changed. The face of the world is changed for good or bad based on leadership oftentimes. But I also find fascinating, perhaps even more, it's just regular everyday acts of courage that often aren't published. They aren't featured on a podcast. But I think about people like my dad. I mean, my dad grew up just kind of in a normal middle-class family in Alabama, was on the city council uh, for 20 years in Montgomery and was a state farm agent. And nothing about his life, um, you know, no no publishers are beating down my dad's house, uh, mom and dad's house to to write a memoir, right? But when you hear his story, and by the way, we all have stories like this, but when you hear my dad's story, it's amazing to see how a really quiet and even shy individual, because he had a conviction for his community and to serve others, learn to do public speaking and learn to run a campaign and learn to do all these things. And so I know as a son, every time I watch my dad step up to a podium and give us, give a speech, I know dad's like rack with fear and he doesn't like it. And dad, dad's no longer on the, the board, but dad's got Parkinson's. And so he's got tremors and stuff like that. And if you, if you're around him enough, you can kind of notice when he's really nervous because he's, sh- he's literally shaking. He's so nervous. And yet, because of love of neighbor and what what he feels like a call of God to do, he's willing to step up and do it. So those sorts of things are absolutely fascinating to me. And those sorts of people are, are my heroes. And part of what I want to do on the podcast is shine a light on some of that stuff. Because for so long, when we think about leadership, we think it's something that other people do. People with big platforms and big titles and large followings and people that are Enneagram X, Y, and Z. But I think when you look to scripture, leadership is something that all of us are called to do. And one of the things I hope to do is show how that's not always knocking down this massive organizational wall or writing this amazing 500 page book. Sometimes it's just stepping up and giving a speech at the local town hall. And um, so those are the things that fire me up. Those are, those are my heroes. And so Charles, Every Christian is called to to some measure of leadership, and that's something that we can all do, as as you said, about following God on mission. So we just want to say thanks so much uh, for taking the time to talk to us today. Man, I've had a blast. We're living in uncertain times. All of our lives have changed as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. 
and none of us know what the future holds. How do we begin to think through recent events and learn to cope with them? In a new book called Where is God in a Coronavirus World, Oxford professor John Lennox examines the coronavirus pandemic and shows us how the Christian worldview can help us make sense of recent events. Lennox reminds Christians that we have a sure and certain hope to cling to when everything around us changes. Go to thegoodbook.com to pre-order now. So now it's time for what we normally call the lunchroom, but right now all of our conversations are happening online. So we'll just call this the, you know, the chat room or the digital water cooler. But Lindsay, you're up first this week. Uh, what's on your mind? Okay, so my chat room is a beautiful rendition of It Is Well, sung by studio singers out of Nashville. So it gives me all the feels, all the heart emojis for Nashville, and it's gorgeous. Just shows that Nashville has the best of the best and that people are taking lemons and making lemonade. Well, I don't know, Lindsay, why I wasn't invited with with my angelic voice uh, to be a part of this. Where's my invitation? Well, I have a feeling I know why you weren't invited. You should go ask your wife. Maybe she'll be honest. The fact that my that my voice is angelic. I believe. Yeah, the opposite of angelic. (laughs) Man. Okay. Well, for my uh, chat room section this week, I just wanted to share some, man, I just wanted to bring some levity to some really hard times because uh, I have, you know, one of the things that's been happening is just a lot of mindless time on the internet. So I thought I would serve you by bringing you three fun things that I saw online this week. So uh, for those of you who do the Enneagram, uh, this will mean a lot to you. For other ones, it's still funny. Uh, There is like uh, my Enneagram number, I'm an Enneagram eight. And so I saw this uh, meme online this week of Enneagram eights. And let me describe it to you. It basically said this. It was like, you know, one of those like soda uh, dispensary like machines that you can get, you know, multiple sodas from that when we were kids you used to take and you would just get one of everything and mix it all up and taste this really gross drink. Well, uh, it, it was one of those and it showed that a cup that was kind of pushing down two of those things at the same time. And in the one, it said, you know, it was describing Enneagram 8s, and, and one of them said, huge jerk face. And the other said, literally the nicest person you've ever met. And so I took that and I posted it on my Instagram. Uh, and I have never had so much feedback about anything I've posted online before for people saying that's exactly right, that Enneagram 8s, and I guess me, uh, huge jerk face, literally the nicest person you've ever met. And somehow, you just managed to be both of those things. So that's that's the first one. The second one is, you guys remember back, uh, Brent, Lindsay, during the Super Bowl, there was all of that drama about the Peloton ad. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Peloton, was, Peloton lady. Yes, Peloton lady. Well, it was, it was outrageous. And so I've seen several people try to revive that uh, in the week since then, but I saw maybe the best one. There was an account called Extreme Social Distancer, which obviously is a, a new account. And uh, I don't know anything else they posted, so maybe don't go look at it. But uh, there was this one tweet that was up there, and it said, honestly, a $1,200 stimulus check isn't that much. You can barely buy half a Peloton. And it just got me because, you know, all the drama around the Peloton ads, people are, you know, like we talked about earlier, hoping that people sincerely are helped by uh, this stimulus check. But just taking that thing that we're all, you know, focused on right now and just making a joke out of it was was something really special. And then the last one was this guy who in his kitchen just did one of those, you know, you see these videos kind of floating around from time to time where people like make these contraptions where, you know, it's it's all reactive. Like you, you do one thing and then it's like the domino effect and all these other things are happening Well, this guy in his kitchen – 
just set up the most incredible game of mousetrap I've ever seen. Uh, and the whole point was it served him dessert. So I've got a link there in the uh, in the show notes for you to check that out because it is it's just a fun video that is you know, two minutes of just mindless uh, well creativity and and humor. So you should um, you should definitely take the chance to check that out. Brent, what do you got this week? Oh, I'm sorry, Brent. You're going to comment. You should definitely check that out. <laughs> you got to look at it. You have to look at us, Josh. Yeah, you're defeating sorry. the point of the FaceTime. I was I was reading my things. <laughs> yeah, we 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 noticed. Uh, so, Josh, that was a very interesting uh, contraption that that gentleman created. My only question is, did he just have a wagon wheel? laying around and then if you have a extra wagon wheel do you cut out a spoke to get the effect i mean is that just what you do i thought that was impressive but even more impressive than that to me one i'm pretty sure he destroyed his laptop in order to do that so there's that and (laughs) uh, (laughs) and he puts this butter on basically a a homemade conveyor belt you'll just have to check it out but it's like a butter candle it's melting it's it's a very like you know, it's creative and um, who knows why he put the time into that. But I enjoyed it as a person who is spending way too much time indoors and on the internet. Well, those videos that we see kind of make me feel bad about myself because what am I doing with my extra time? I definitely can't come up with anything creative like that. I just watch my brain turn to mush. You're raising a one-year-old child. You're doing it. Oh, that's very true. That does redeem it. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So my my thing that I'm bringing this week is uh, Dr. Robbie George. He is a professor at Princeton University. Uh, he's a former chairman of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. He is a wise voice that I would say turn to in any season uh, for direction on um, just on life and wise... liberty and the pursuit of happiness. <laughs> yeah, those things. He he's he's just a wise voice. For, for really all things uh, in, in our culture right now. But uh, that is not why I'm recommending him today. He has started in this season of social isolation, putting out videos because he is an accomplished banjo player. And to see Dr. Robbie George, somebody that you typically view for very serious things, to be playing the banjo as great as he does in a ball cap and sunglasses is gratifying for the soul. It sure is. I mean, Robbie George, you know, is one of the foremost uh, conservative intellectuals in America. And he is, I mean, I describe him just as a total boss. I mean, that's what he is. But like these videos of him playing the banjo, he is just owning his role right there. I mean, he's got like the hat and like you said, not just sunglasses, but like, you know, he's leaning into the old man look with the old man, epic old man sunglasses. Uh, And he is just, man, but he can just play the banjo. And so as an Eastern North Carolina boy uh, who has been to many, many uh, bluegrass concerts and Saturday night, uh, you know, small country we, we call them like sings or whatever, to hear a lot of bluegrass, it is just a special thing. And you should definitely check it out. What more right, can so you just, say, Josh? <laughs> absolutely. So that brings us to our, our final segment for the week, which is our, our mailbag. So Lindsay, why don't you tell us uh, what's, and it's not actually the mailbag. Lindsay, why don't you tell us what's in the inbox? This church member asks, an interracial couple is getting married in our church. Some members have threatened to leave if this happens. What should we do? 
Yeah, so we hear from uh, people from time to time with this question or, or very similar questions about what to do, because uh, this is, uh, as Christians, something that we we want to help people think carefully about, not only just about human dignity, but also about race and about racial reconciliation. Uh, probably the first thing that I would point to is just to say, uh, to to make sure that your theology in terms of what the Bible says uh, about this issue is, is uh, well thought out. And so the first place that I would point you there is just back to the very beginning of the Bible. If you look at uh, Genesis chapters one and two, we see that God creates man in his image. And it says that that man is created in his image, uh, and that's both men and women, and that because every person is created in the image of God, that means uh, that they have an inherent value and dignity. And there are no uh, degrees of that. That is true of every person who has ever lived. They are made in the image of God, and they have this intrinsic, inherent dignity and value. And there are no kind of gradations of that. There's no, no thing that separates that. And so uh, when we're looking at this question for Christians, the most important question when Christians are thinking about getting married is, are both parties believers? Is both the man and the woman a, a committed follower of Jesus? And so if that's in place, that's the number one thing uh, that the Bible points us to when we're considering marriage. Uh, more and more than that, when we're thinking about marriage, uh, the New Testament teaches us that uh, what the Apostle Paul calls the mystery is the fact that God in Christ plans to unite all peoples in Jesus, to bring them into one new family. We see this in Ephesians, we see this in Colossians. And so as we're thinking about this idea of being one new family and God creating one new family through Christ, uh, there's nothing that leads us uh, to believe that that should be, that actual families here on the earth should somehow be separated uh, by, by race. There's nothing in the Bible that says or implies that. And so because that's the case, I would encourage every church to, if you're a pastor in this church, to think about this uh, carefully, to teach on this, to talk about human dignity, talk about uh, the doctrine of the Imago Dei, and to talk about the fact that through the gospel, God is creating this new family. If there are people who want to push back to that or don't understand that, try to understand if that's like a discipleship issue where people just haven't you know, thought fully enough about what the Bible says rather than is it some kind of like obstinance or recalcitrant attitude that just won't let them, where they are refusing to recognize what the Bible says is true. But ultimately, I mean, we want to counsel patience and love and a lot, a lot of spirit-given wisdom as you're dealing with a hard situation like this. But uh, one thing that I would tell pastors, church members, uh, or anyone is that you're, you're not going to regret standing firm for what the Bible says is true. You're not going to regret standing up for the dignity of your fellow image bearers. And you should you should be willing to to stand for and to do what the Bible says is true, even if that means that that some people can't or some people are going to refuse to follow you in that direction. Uh, I, I would say that ultimately that's okay. If people choose to leave your church because your church is is, you know, being as loving toward them as you can while continuing to do what the Word of God says you should do or is okay or permissible uh, according to God's Word, I, I don't think that's something you would regret. And Lindsay, you said this came from a church member, right? Yes. So uh, hopefully this member is taking their concerns first and foremost to their pastor, and hopefully the pastor is seeing this as a great opportunity to reassert some of those things theologically that that Josh just surfaced, the Imago Day and and other doctrines that are relevant to make sure that these individuals who might be confused or concerned are, are actually just going to get more of the gospel in their lives uh, to see the, the proper path forward here. So lots of wisdom, lots of patience, uh, but the, the gospel is ultimately what we need to, to fall back on. 
I think that's exactly right. Before we sign off, we just want to say thanks again for listening to the show and for helping spread the word for other people to find and discover the podcast. Uh, just as a reminder, one of the things that is really helpful for us is for you to go into your podcast app and leave us a rating or a brief review, uh, just telling other people uh, about the podcast or why you like it and to share it on social media. So if you would take the time to do that, we'd really appreciate it. So uh, for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we are going to sign off now, but we'll be back next week with more content.